This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. Welcome to Opening the Scriptures. Today we're going to continue our studies in the book of Job. And we're going to begin in Job chapter 9, verse 27. Times inclined to be more cheerful, but those feelings are crushed in his thinking that he is condemned by God. And that's verses 27 through 31. Uh, he says in verse 27, if he stops his complaining, maybe he can appear to be in comfort. Job 9:27. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. Uh, Job is thinking about maybe forcing himself to smile and to appear to be comfortable. And then Job seems to be blaming himself for what is happening to him. There in verse 28, I'm afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt, thou wilt not hold me innocent. Uh, Albert Barnes in his commentary on Esau stated this, and I quote, God will not remove my sorrows so as to furnish the evidence that I'm innocent. My sufferings continue, and with them continue all the evidence on which my friends rely that I am a guilty man. In such a state of things, how can I be otherwise than sad?" Unquote. And then Job challenges Bildad, who had just spoken to him, by asking, if I am guilty, why am I working so hard to prove that I'm innocent? And that's verse 29. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? Again, Adam Clark there in his commentary on out uh, in Esau stated this, and I quote, If I am the sinner you suppose me to be, in vain should I labor to counterfeit joy and cease to complain of my sufferings, unquote. So why should Job try to prove his innocence if he's treated like he's not by both his friends and he believes by God as well. Well, no matter how much he tries to prove his innocence, Job feels that he's treated like filth. There in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, Yet thou shalt plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. John Simpson, in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectureship book on page 96, made this statement, and I quote, His accusers would not pronounce him innocent, even if he went through all the outward affirmations or oaths of innocence. There was an ancient rite of washing the hands in demonstration of innocence, Psalm 26, 6, 
Matthew 27:24. Also, snow water or melted snow is known to be pure through the evaporation process of nature, unquote. Now, in this statement, he mentions a couple of verses. Psalm 26, 6. That verse says, I will wash mine hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. And then in Matthew 27, 24, there at the trial of Jesus, it says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. So there's a couple examples of washing the hands to try to show innocency. Well, maybe in Psalm 26, 6, that could be shown, but in Matthew 27, 24, Pilate was just a coward. But regardless of that, going back to Job chapter 9, Job again feels helpless to contend with God. And that's Job 9, 32 to 35. In verse 32, Job says that God is not a man to be reasoned with. He says, for he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and that we should come together in judgment, you know, that that contest would not be equal because God is infinitely superior in majesty and power and knowledge and wisdom and such things as that. And then in verse 33, Job says, there is no umpire for this match. He says, neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. The word translated daysman here in the King James Version is yakak, yakak, something like that. Anyway, Strong says the word means to be right, that is correct, reciprocally to argue, causatively to decide, justify, or convict. Or in other words, there is no one that can lay a hand of restraint on God. God doesn't need a hand of restraint because he does all things that are right. Well, in Job chapter 9, verse 34, Job wanted God to suspend his suffering and come together on equal terms. Verse 34, let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Albert Barnes in his commentary stated this, and I quote, If my sufferings were lightened, I could approach the question with the rigor of health and the power of reasoning unweakened by calamity. I could then do justice to the views which I entertain. Now there would be obvious disparity. While one of the parties has crushed and uh, innervated the other by the mere exercise of power, unquote. And innervated there means fate, faint, would faint. Well, if Job had good health, he said he would speak to God on equal terms. But in his present state, he is unable to do that. There in Job 9.35, 
Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Job says that he would have the courage to go before God if he was in good health, but he's not. And then in Job chapter 10, Job's complaint to God, actually Job complains to God about his afflictions in Job chapter 10 verses 1 through 22. Well, in Job chapter 10 verse 1, he says, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the light bitterness of my soul. Verse 2 says, I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. So Job has ended his speech to Bildad, and now he is addressing God. Show me what you have against me, or stop treating me like this. Now Job is not defiant. He just wants some answers from God. Job is weary. He's frustrated. He's disgusted with his life. He's already said that he has wished to die. But Job wanted to know the cause of his suffering. And Job wants to know if God finds pleasure in tormenting him while he's favoring the wicked. In verse 3, Job says, Is it good unto thee that thou shouldest oppress, that thou shouldest despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Albert Barnes in his commentary states this, and I quote, The sense of this is that it could not be with God a matter of personal gratification to inflict pain wantonly, there must be a reason why he did it. This was clear to Job, and he was anxious, therefore, to know the reason why he was treated in this manner. Yet there is evidently here not a little of the spirit of complaining. There is an insinuation that God was afflicting him beyond what he deserved." Unquote. Well, in verses 4 through 6 here in Job 10, Job accuses God of acting on the human level. Verses 4 to 6. Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as man seest? Are thy days as the days of man? Are thy years as man's days? That thou inquirest after mine iniquity, and searchest after my sin? See, Job's friends were judging him harshly. And to Job, it appeared to him that God was doing the very same thing. Uh, Albert Barnes again, quoting him, Does thy life pass on like that of a man? Dost thou expect to soon die that thou dost pursue me in this manner, searching out my sins and afflicting me as if there was no time to lose? Unquote. Well, in verse 7 of Job 10, Job affirms his innocence, but he has no power to release himself from his suffering. Job 10, 7. Thou knowest that I am not wicked. There is none that can deliver 
out of thine hand. So Job says that God knows he is not a wicked person, but he says that God keeps on persecuting him. And then in verse 8, Job wonders why God went to the trouble of making Job and then just to destroy him. Job chapter 10, verse 8. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. Again, quoting Adam Clark, Men generally care for and prize those works on which they have spent most time, skill, and pains. But although thou hast formed me with such incredible skill and labor, yet thou art about to destroy me, unquote. Well, God asked, or excuse me, Job asked God if he is going to bring him to the dust there in verse 9 of Job 10. Remember, I beseech thee, that thou hast made me as the clay, and wilt thou bring me to dust again? You think back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that man was created from the dust of the ground. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then over in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. Speaking of death, it says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So Job is wondering, are you just going to send me back to the dust that you created man from? Well, the imagery that Job uses is that of the origin and growth of the human body there in Job 10, verses 10 through 13. He says there, Hast thou not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh, and hast fenced me with bones and sinews. Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. And these things hast thou hid in thine heart. I know that this is with thee. So he's saying there that God watched over him. He's preserved him. Quoting Adam Clark, Thou hast had many gracious purposes concerning me, which thou hast not made known. But thy visitations and mercy are sufficient proofs of kindness toward me. Though for purposes unknown unto me, thou hast sorely afflicted me and continuest to treat me as an enemy, unquote. So he talks about the origin and growth of the human body. Uh, the psalmist did the very same thing in Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. Psalm 139, verses, well, let's read verses 12 through 16. says, Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. For thou possessest my reins, or inward parts. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. 
I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, that's speaking of the womb there. Verse 16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. That's talking about the progression there from conception to a, a born child. That child continues to develop within the mother's womb from conception. You know, when he didn't have 10 little fingers and 10 little toes and two little eyes and ears and one little nose. But those things were continually being fashioned, as it says there. I mean, that is a passage right there that tells us that abortion is nothing but the destruction of human life. Uh, some people call it murder. Whenever you look at the way that abortion is done, I think uh, torture and execution of an unborn child fit it more accurately because that's what's taking place. You think about, you can have this for free in this lesson, by the way. You think about being ripped, arm off your body, your legs off your body. That's torture and execution. You think about being immersed in a saline solution that burns your body until you die. That's torture and execution and the other ways that are used. Abortion is nothing but torture and the execution of an unborn, innocent child. But now let's go back to the book of Job. Job complains that there is no apparent advantage of being good over being evil. And that's Job 10, 14, and 15. He says, If I sin, then thou markest me, and thou wilt not acquit me from mine iniquity. If I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion. Therefore, see thou mine affliction. So again, Job still thinks that God is behind all of his afflictions. We know better, but Job didn't know that. Job is confused as to why God is tormenting him and would not pardon him. And Job said there he is not going to boast about his righteousness, but he was sincere about being innocent. Well, Job says that God is hunting him like hunters that go after a fierce animal, a fierce lion there in Job 10, 16. For it increaseth, thou huntest me as a fierce lion, and again thou showest thyself marvelous upon me. Well, Job is saying his afflictions are increasing daily. His friends are attacking him, and he thinks God is attacking him also. But Job still praises God, even though he thinks God is showing himself wonderful at Job's expense. In verse 17, Job's afflictions have come upon him as a 
hostile witness in a court of law. Job 10, 17. Thou renewest my wickedness, or excuse me, thou renewest my witness against me and increaseth thine indignation upon me. Changes and war are against me. Well, again, Job thinks God is using the calamities that have come upon him as witnesses against Job that Job is wicked. And then, again, Job wishes that he had died at birth. Job chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb? Oh, that I had given up the ghost, and, had, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. So he's still wishing that he had died at birth. And then Job pleads with God to leave him alone so that he could enjoy life a little while before he dies. And that's verses 20 to 22. Are not my days few? Cease then and let me alone that I may take comfort a little. Before I go whence I shall not return even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land of darkness as darkness itself. And of the shadow of death without any order and where light is as darkness. Job calls his descent into the world of the dead as the land of darkness. We know more of the world of the dead than Job did because Jesus revealed it to us. You think about Luke 16 there, the rich man and Lazarus there, the event that took place there. Well, the shadow of death refers to a place where death rules and intercepts every kind of life. Albert Barnes says, and I quote, This passage is important as furnishing an illustration of what was early understood about the regions of the dead. The essential idea here is that it was a land of darkness of total and absolute night. Well, Job is in the grief process here in this passage. He is demonstrating in this chapter, he's demonstrating shock suffering, fear, anger, bitterness, depression, confusion, discouragement, insecurity, hopelessness, and loneliness. Now Job is not turned away from God, but he is struggling with his faith. Well, Zophar is Job's next friend to speak here in Job chapter 11. Well, how is he going to answer what Job has just said? Well, Job has just defended himself against Bildad there in chapters 9 and 10, and he made some foolish accusations against God. You remember Job declared his innocence, said Job knew, or God knew Job wasn't wicked, as we saw in chapter 10, verse 7. But he says God continues to torment him in verse 8. Job wanted God to tell him the reason that Job feels that God is torturing him. 
there in Job 10.2. And Job concluded his speech knowing in his mind he was going to die without any comfort. There are the last three verses, 20 to 22. Well, Zophar now begins to speak with uh, to Job, and he explodes at what Job has just said. Zophar is more caustic than Eliphaz and Bildad. And Adam Clark says of Zophar, quote, he is the most inveterate or hardened of Job's accusers and generally speaks without feeling or pity. In sour godliness, he excelled all the rest, unquote. Well, Zophar first declares that Job's punishment is less than he deserved in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11. The first thing that Zophar tells Job, Job, you're just mouthing off. Job 11, verses 1 and 2. Then answered Zophar the Naamathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Zophar is saying that Job is full of words speaking boastfully and mockingly, and somebody needs to respond to that. The Hebrew word translated full of talk means full of lips. So Zophar is saying that Job is a man of mere lips or empty sounding, making meaningless speeches. Zophar says that Job is a blowhard and has said a lot of things he needs to be reprimanded of instead of justified. In verse 3, Zophar warns Job that Job's lies will not shut his friends down from saying what they know is right. Chapter 11, verse 3. Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? Well, the Hebrew word translated lies there can mean empty talk, idle talk, bragging, and lying. The American Standard Version does translate the word as boastings, but it can also mean these other words as we've mentioned. Zophar tells Job that Job is despising his friends, and does he think that he doesn't need to be reproved of that? Zophar says that Job is insulting and ridiculing them when he's the one being punished by God. Therefore, Zophar says that Job is not in the right, and he must not be allowed to have the last word. And then Zophar agrees that Job claims to be innocent. Verse 4, I am as one mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God, and he entereth him. The upright man is laughed to scorn. Zophar there implies that Job's conduct and teaching are not pure, and Job is not sincere or pure in his life. Kent Bailey in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectureship book on page 102 made this statement, and I quote, 
In looking at what Job had already stated, we read nothing of Job claiming to have a particular doctrine that belonged exclusively to him. In fact, he had not claimed sinless perfection of life. The assertion regarding his own personal life Job had made was that he had honestly made a very sincere attempt to obey God and treat his man in an equitable way, unquote. So, so far then, wishes that God would tell Job the truth about this. Job 11, 5. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. What Zophar is saying here, he claims that if God would speak to Job, oh, that's, I'm sorry, I read verse, I read chapter, 11, chapter 12. Let's go back to chapter 11. Verse 4, I messed up there. For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. So Zophar implies that Job's conduct and teaching are not pure, and he's not sincere, and then Kent Bailey made his statement. In verse 5, Zophar wishes God would tell truth, uh, Job the truth about that. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee. Well, Zophar claims that if God would speak to Job, Job would not find himself to be as holy as he claimed to be. God would show Job what true wisdom really is, and he would expose Job's erroneous wisdom. Well, Zophar then claims that God is punishing Job less than he deserves in chapter 11, verse 6. And that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. So what is Zophar saying? Well, Albert Barnes says this, and I quote, the sense is this, you now think yourself pure and holy. You have confidence in your own wisdom and integrity. But this apprehension is based on a short-sighted view of God and on ignorance of him. If he would speak and show you his wisdom, if he would express his sense of what purity is, you would at once see how far you have come from perfection and would be overwhelmed with the sense of your comparative vileness and sin, unquote. Well, the word translated double here, says we say that they are double, which is, means duplicate. That's according to Strong's. Wilson's Old Testament word studies give this definition of that word translated double. To fold double, manifold, or the wisdom of God is double fold, complicated or abundant. So the sense is that God's wisdom is complicated, unable to be explained, and diverse. It is not spread out where it can be seen plainly. And Zophar says that Job deserves to suffer much more than he is because he is such an evil man. Uh, the word translated exacteth, where it says, Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. 
It's a banking term that means to forget. Uh, Young's literal translation brings out these definitions that we've just looked at. This is what it says, and I quote, And declare to thee the secrets of wisdom, for counsel hath foldings, and know that thou that God forgetteth for thee some of thine iniquity, unquote. So Zophar saying, Job, God is treating you better than you deserve. Well, then Zophar declares that God does not have to launch an investigation to get the truth. Job 11, 7 through 12. Zophar claims that any investigation made by man of God would fall short there in Job 11, 7. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Uh, Wayne Jackson in his work, The Book of Job, on page 41 states this, and I quote, Zophar presents a marvelous description of Jehovah's infinite wisdom, verses 7 through 9, and it is beautifully accurate. His application of this thing to Job is, of course, based upon other theological premises that are, in fact, quite erroneous, as the scope of the entire drama tr clearly reveals, unquote. Well, in other words, this simply means that we as human beings cannot fully and totally comprehend the depths of God, but that really doesn't apply to Job's case. Well, Zophar then declares that the knowledge of God is as high as the heaven and as deep as Sheol, Job 8, 11, verse 8. It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The word translated hell here is the Hebrew word Sheol, which Strong's defines as Hades, or the world of the dead. So it's deeper than the world of the dead. Adam Clark says this, and I quote, These are instances in the immensity of created things, and all out of the reach of human power and knowledge. And if things, these things are so, how incomprehensible must he be who designed, created, preserves, and governs the whole, unquote. Well, God's knowledge, Zophar says, is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So in other words, God is infinite and his attributes, his love, his wisdom, his knowledge, his righteousness, his holiness are all immeasurable. And if God wants to make a change, Zophar says, who can stop him? Verse 10 of chapter 11. If he cut off and shut up or gathered together, then who can hinder him? So cut off there is from the Hebrew word kalaf, which means properly to slide by, that is by implication to hasten away, pass on, spring up, pierce, or change. So if God wants to change something, 
uh, talks about shut up. There's translated from sagar, which means to shut or close. Gather is translated from the word kahal, which means to assemble or to gather. So the verse means that God has all power and no one can resist his power. And yet he says, Job, you're trying. You're trying to. And then Zophar implies that Job is vain and wicked. Job 11, 11. For he knoweth vain men, he seeth wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? Well, right there, that's an implication toward Job. He says he knows people whose opinions have no value or vain. They're full of deceit and hypocrisy. Well, you, I wonder who Zophar is thinking about there. Yeah, we know, don't we? It's Job. And then he says God will consider these people and bring them to trial. He will not let this kind of person go unnoticed. And Job, look at what's happening to you. You're not going unnoticed. You're evil and wicked and deceitful and hypocritical ways. Well, Zophar then tells Job that the day a wild donkey's colt is born to a woman is the day that you will not be an idiot. Verse 12, for vain men would be wise, though man be born like a wild donkey's colt. Wayne Jackson on page 42 of his book, uh, the book of Job, states this, and I quote, very, uh, verse 12 is very difficult of translation, but it may be a proverbial expression which suggests that a vain, hollow-minded man can be no more, or can no more become wise than a donkey's colt could be born to a man. Unquote. Adam Clark says this, and I quote: "Man is full of self-conceit, imagines himself born to act as he pleases, to roam at large, to be under no control." and to be accountable to none for his actions, unquote. So again, this is just another insult that Zophar is throwing at Job. In verses 13 through 20, Zophar states that those who repent will prosper, but those who are wicked have no hope. So Zophar calls for Job to repent. There in verse 13, if thou wilt, or if thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him. You know what? Zophar gives a great illustration of what true repentance is. In this verse, prepare thine heart. In other words, have a change in your heart. And then we also See this stated by Zophar, stretch out thine hands toward him. That indicates man's request for pardon from God. Well, the next 
step of true repentance, Zophar states in verse 14, If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. So again, he's stating a very true statement about repentance. If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away. Don't let it dwell in your tabernacles. In other words, have a change in your lifestyle is what he's telling Job here. Well, when people do not repent of their sins, they don't reform their lives. And Zophar had the correct reasoning, but he made the wrong application because what he's saying does not apply with what's happening to Job. It doesn't apply to Job because we know that the devil is behind all of this. Well, Zophar drew the wrong conclusion that Job needed to do these things in his life to get right with God. In verse 15, Zophar tells Job that God would bless him instead of cause him to suffer if Job would just repent. Chapter 11, verse 15. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear. He's telling Job that your face would be bright and cheerful because you would be happy if you would just repent. Your, your, your life would then be solid and firm if you would just repent. Zophar tells Job in verse 16 that all of his troubles would go away if he would only repent because thou shalt forget thy misery and remember it as waters that pass away. Job's afflictions would be like the water that has flowed never to return again if he would just repent. That's what Zophar is saying. And he says, Job, your intense pain would soon subside. The day of sorrow would quickly pass away. Those sad days that you are experiencing right now would only be a bad memory if you would just repent. So far then says that Job's life would be happy if he would just repent. Job eleven seventeen. And thine age shall be clearer than the noonday. Thou shalt shine forth. Thou shalt be as the morning. Job, your life would be cheerful and happy. The remainder of your life would be as bright as the sun if you just repent. Job considers his life to be in darkness now, and he's mentioned that. But if he would repent, Zophar says your days would be clear and bright. Albert Barnes says of this verse, and I quote, The sense of the Hebrew is plain. He was then in darkness. Clouds and calamities were round about him. But if he would return to God, he would be permitted to enjoy a bright day of prosperity. Such a day would return to him like the morning after a long and gloomy night, unquote. 
Well, Zophar then insists that if Job would repent, he could be secure and not afraid. He could have hope again, and he could rest in safety. Job 11:18. And thou shalt be secure because there is hope. Yea, thou shalt dig about thee, and thou shalt take thy rest in safety. Job, he's saying, you'd be free from all the anxieties and fears that you have now. Job, you could have hope again, that hope that you have lost. John Gill makes this statement on, or says this on the statement, thou shalt dig, and I quote, yea, thou shalt dig about thee to let in stakes for the pitching and fixing of tents to dwell in, and for more commodious pasturage, or for wells of water, for the supply both of the family and the flocks, or rather for ditches and trenches, to secure from thieves and robbers, or for drains to carry off flood water, uh, floods of water, unquote. Well, several different things he mentions there, but regardless of the meaning, Zophar is saying you could rest in safety if you would only repent. Well, Zophar then says that Job would not be disturbed by his fears if he would repent. Verse 19, And thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee. Well, he's saying not only would you live in safety, you would again be as one to whom many would look for counsel, just that they had done before your afflictions, Job. And then in verse 20, Zophar warns Job that he better repent or else. Verse 20, But the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. Well, Zophar is telling Job, Job, you are anxiously looking for relief from your miseries, and we've told you what you need to do to have that relief. But Job, if you don't follow our instructions, your eyes are going to fail. You're not going to escape your calamities and your only hope for relief is death. So, so far here, he's reminding Job that the only hope of the wicked is death, and that is what Job is asking for. Therefore, Job, you are wicked. Zophar lambasted Job because he thought Job was a fake. He thought Job was a hypocrite. He thought Job was evil. He thought Job needed to repent. And Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad had all the answers to solve Job's problems there. Job, if you will just listen to us, we know that because you are suffering so much, you're wicked. If you'll just repent, things will be well with you. Well, Job is going to respond to the things that were just said 
in chapters 12 through 14. And Lord willing, we'll get back, get into that in our next lesson. So again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in today, and we look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.